You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Today's story takes us to a high school in Massachusetts where a young boy does the unthinkable. Danvers, Massachusetts is a commuter town of about 25,000 residents near Boston. Some of you might know Danvers from its involvement in the Salem witch trials. Now, this town is considered upper middle class. It has good schools and well-cared-for single-family homes and ample town amenities and recreational facilities. In October of 2013, Colleen Ritzer was a math teacher at Danvers High School. It was six weeks into the new school year, and the popular 24-year-old teacher was well into the first semester's curriculum. Colleen had her hands full with a lot of students, but she always took the time to seek out the ones who needed extra help or just seemed to be struggling. On Tuesday, October 22nd, Colleen stayed after school to meet with two students. One of them was a freshman male. Another student saw the two of them having a conversation and said the student looked annoyed. Colleen was next seen headed to the ladies' room on the floor where her classroom was. She could be seen on a still photo from the school surveillance system walking down the hallway. She is smiling and waving at someone who is off camera. It was 2.54 p.m. That was the last time anyone saw Colleen Ritzer alive. When Colleen failed to come home that afternoon after school, her parents, whom she lived with, called her cell phone. There was no answer. Afternoon dragged into evening, and Colleen was unheard from. Now, this was totally out of character and very worrisome. Finally, the Ritzers reported her missing to the Danvers police. At 6.34 p.m. on October 22nd, a woman named Diana Chisholm called the Danvers Police Department. She reported that her son, 14-year-old Philip Chisholm, a freshman at Danvers High School, had not come home from school and she could not locate him. The police took this seriously as he was a minor. They quickly disseminated a photo of Philip to the public via Twitter and Facebook. Danvers residents also received a reverse 911 call. At 9 p.m., the principal of the high school sent a message to all of the faculty and staff letting them know that a student was missing. It's not clear whether the parents were also alerted at this time. Soon thereafter, the police was notified that a teacher, Colleen Ritzer, was also missing. An officer on duty that night heard reports of the missing boy. Around that time, somebody called in to report seeing a young male walking on Old Route 1 in Topsfield on the highway close to the tree line. This was considered an unsafe walking area. The highway was dark and narrow and had no sidewalks. The officer responded to the area of the report, and sure enough, just a quarter mile from the police station, he saw a male walking north on the southbound lane of Old Route 1. The officer activated his emergency lights, did a three-point turn in his police cruiser, and pulled over. 
Another officer also pulled up at the same time. They got out and confronted the man walking. They did not know that it was Philip Chisholm, the missing boy from Danvers. The man they stopped looked way older than 14, and he was taller than both of the officers. This man, or boy, was wearing shorts, a zip-up sweatshirt, black knee socks, and sneakers. It was 45 degrees outside. His hands were in his sweatshirt pockets, and he was carrying a backpack. The officer asked the young man where he was going, and he said, nowhere. He was then asked where he was coming from, and the young man responded, Tennessee. Once again, the officer asked where he was headed, and the young man responded, nowhere, once again. He was acting odd, and he was not making eye contact. The boy was then asked where he lived. His response was something about having no address and had been walking for days. He claimed to not have any ID on him. Amy, when was this? This was the same day? How, how long that was That evening. It was that evening. It was evening. that evening. Okay, yeah. so he hadn't been walking for days. I just wanted mm-hmm. to clarify. Thank you. Yes. The officer patted down the young man and felt what he thought was a credit card or an ID in his left pocket. The officer then asked the man to take his hands out of his pocket and asked him what was in his backpack. The young man said it was survival gear. The officer then took the backpack because, of course, survival gear could be guns or knives. Finally, they asked the young man his name, and he said Philip Chisholm. They knew that name. That was the missing boy from nearby Danvers. The boy was acting strange with a reported flat affect, and he kept staring off into the distance as he answered questions. The officers asked him to empty his pockets and place everything on the trunk. Out came a driver's license, insurance card, and credit card. Except they weren't in his name. They were all in the name of Colleen Ritzer. At this time, the officers had no idea that there was also a young woman who was missing, and that young woman was, in fact, Colleen Ritzer. At 12.35 a.m., the officers called the Danvers Police Department to report that they had found Philip. This is when things got even stranger. They asked Philip where he got the credit cards, and Philip said he found it on the ground at a nearby stop-and-shop. But the officers knew that there was no stop-and-shop nearby. They asked what stop-and-shop, to which Philip said he didn't know. They then asked where he got the ID, and he said from her car. Had he stolen the purse or wallet of a woman named Colleen Ritzer, the officers wondered, again, having no idea that there was also a teacher from the same school missing. Right. The officers drove Philip to the nearby police station, and they put him in a booking room. They gave him a blanket. They were asking him questions, one of the questions being, you know, was there anything dangerous in the backpack that we should know about? And Philip said yes. So the officer opened the backpack, and inside he found a woman's purse containing numerous items, including green women's underwear and a box cutter with a protruding blade that had a reddish-brown substance on it. The officer asked, whose blood is this? To which Philip said, it's the girl's. Ugh, not good. At this point, the Danvers Police Department were on their way to pick Philip up. Meanwhile, back in the interview room, the officers were asking Philip if he knew where this, quote, girl was, and Philip said that she was buried in the woods. The officer also noticed that the boy had brown reddish stains on the sleeves of his sweatshirt and also a ski mask that was around his neck. The officer asked Philip to hand over his clothing and sneakers, and he collected those items into evidence and, of course, handed them and Philip over to the Danvers Police Department when they arrived. Meanwhile, earlier that evening back in Danvers, it was all hands on deck to locate the missing student, Philip Chisholm. Some officers were reviewing video surveillance footage to see if they saw Philip on it and maybe determine where he had gone. 
They were also searching the school building and grounds. Somebody came forward, a parent of another student, saying that she had seen a boy believed to be Philip Chisholm changing his clothes outside the academic wing of the school by the student parking lot that day around 3 p.m. That was kind of odd. And this is when all the information started coming together because now everyone knew that there was a missing math teacher, Colleen Ritzer. Her parents had called the school looking for her and filed a police report. While walking through the school around 11 p.m., an officer noted blood on the floor in the second floor woman's bathroom. This was right near Colleen Ritzer's classroom. Danvers police sergeants arrived on the scene at 11.45 p.m., and they were able to locate Colleen's car, which was still in the parking lot. They were then directed to review the video surveillance to look for signs of Colleen or Philip or both of them. Here's a summary of what they saw, and this is where things start moving in this case. Actually, things are moving pretty fairly quickly. I was going to say that. They saw Colleen and another teacher talking in the hallway at approximately 2.30 p.m. Then they saw Colleen leaving her classroom and walking down the hallway at 2.45 p.m. Then, 10 minutes later, at 2.55, they saw Philip Chisholm leaving the same classroom and putting a hood over his head. Next, they saw Colleen entering the girls' bathroom, which was used by students, after finding that the teacher's only ladies' room was locked. Philip then entered the girls' bathroom with a hood over his head. An individual dressed somewhat differently than Philip came out of the bathroom wearing a mask. There was no video depicting Colleen leaving the bathroom. A male figure entered and left the bathroom with a wheeled recycling bin, exiting the school with the bin and walking in the direction of the cross-country path, pulling the bin along. Well, this is obviously not good, but I'm already wondering what the motive would be here, and I'm sure you'll get to that. Yeah, now police knew that the video showed Colleen and Philip in the same bathroom and that Colleen never came out. So everyone was desperately trying to find Colleen. They called in the canine team, thermal imaging unit. They had state police flying over areas around the school. Everyone was hoping that they would find Colleen alive. While searching the area around the school, they found a bloody recycling bin, bloody clothing, including a pair of jeans, and these were suspended on some brush. And they also found a pair of sneakers. In addition, they found a pair of white gloves with blood stains on them. This was all in the woods near the cross-country path in a wooded area near the student parking lot. A crime scene team was then dispatched to the high school. Meanwhile, back at the Danvers police station, Philip's mother, Diana, had arrived. She told the officers that her son loved soccer, he was in honors classes, and he did not get in trouble. So whatever's going on with him, she's either covering or clearly in the dark at this point. Well, you would, yeah. Well, very soon after saying that, she said she did have some concerns about Philip. And when she was told that he was being detained, she said, is he under arrest? Did he hurt somebody? Furthermore, she said, please don't tell me someone's dead. Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. Is it a freshman teacher? He doesn't like his Spanish teacher. Whoa, she went that, Quickly there. Okay. Yes. So it's odd that her mind went right to the idea of her son hurting a teacher. Now, Diana told the police that she could help get stuff out of him, but she was also concerned about protecting him. She told the investigators that she knew he was capable of snapping and that he could have snapped. She also informed them that her family had a history of mental illness. 
Furthermore, she told them that her son had smacked another child in the face in seventh grade. She said, quote, as a mom, you just see some signs. I think Diana probably then realized that maybe she was saying too much and she backpedaled a little and said, I just want to say this. My son, as a juvenile, does have the right to legal representation. So whether Diana and or Philip invoked the right to counsel, that'll be an issue later. But, you know, the police department maintains that these were emergency situations because they suspected that Colleen may be badly injured. So they needed to find her and save her. So they encouraged Diana to get her son to talk. Shortly after 2 a.m., Philip and Diana were allowed to see each other. It's not clear if he was officially under arrest at this time, but he was handcuffed. The mother and son were placed in an interview room and given 8 to 10 minutes to consult before sitting down for a formal interview. The interview began around 2.30 a.m. They were together, but does he have a lawyer? No, he does not. Okay. Philip did not interact with his mother and would not look at her at all. He just said no each time and ignored her. Finally, Diana said to her son, Philip, honey, what can I do? And he did not respond. Now, Diana expressed concern about needing an attorney for her son. And Philip just said what when he was asked whether he agreed to waive his rights. Then Philip said, not really. So the the investigators were appealing to Diana, hoping that she could get Philip to talk to them. Because again, he's only 14. Um, She again said that she wanted an attorney for her son. They're supposed to stop questioning at that point. I'm just pointing that out. They are. Yep. They did not, though, because, again, um, as the investigators would continue to say, this is a serious situation. So they thought time was of the essence. And it was. Yeah. And Diana asked if they could get an attorney that night. And then she turned to her son and said, if you want to talk, you can talk. And she also told him it would be better for you to talk. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. So Philip began to consider cooperating, but he said he would not if his mother was in the room. He asked if she had to be present, and if not, if she could leave. He actually snapped at her, I don't know why you are here. Diana responded, I'm here because I love you, to which he responded, I don't care. Diana then signed the Miranda form. And as she was about to leave, she said to her son, anything you want to say to me? And he responded with go. He would later tell the detectives, I have a very big dislike for my mother and anybody else. Now, once his mother was gone, he seemed to relax a bit. And he said very bad things happen. He said that when he had been talking to Colleen Ritzer, his algebra teacher, she had used a trigger word. He wouldn't say what the word was. But it later turned out that she had referenced Tennessee in the context of asking him where he had moved from. He told them about knocking Colleen out in the bathroom. He admitted to cutting her two times, and the autopsy would later reveal that Colleen was stabbed six times in the neck. He said he thought she was dead. The detectives began to ask questions about where Colleen was. They asked if her body was in Topsfield, and Philip acted annoyed, saying, No, she's not in Topsfield. He then explained the sequence of events, of course, leaving out some things, but he said that she went to the bathroom, he followed her, he knocked her out, and he cut her twice. They showed him the video surveillance footage from the school, and he admitted that it was him in the hoodie who was entering and leaving the women's bathroom. He then went and got the recycling bin, put her in it, put her clothes in it, and then wheeled it out. Yeah, I'm assuming he's going to reveal the location soon, too. 
Yeah, actually, right after that, he explained generally where her body was after explaining that he took her body out of the bin and, quote, chucked it pretty far. They asked him about all the blood in the woman's bathroom, and he said that he knew exactly what artery he was hitting and what would happen. The detectives also asked him to draw a map of where the body was, and he responded, yeah, I don't have a problem with that, and he drew them three different diagrams. He first drew a map of the high school with the word body on the diagram. And then he drew a diagram of an area where he says he smashed his and Colleen's cell phones. And he volunteered that his concern was about the GPS coordinates on the telephone being able to locate him. The third diagram documented where the wounds were located on Colleen's neck. So he's pretty much giving them everything at this point. He was able to tell them that he took the recycling bin down to the first floor by means of the school elevator He recalled how he disposed of the clothing in the bushes. He said his plan afterwards was either to just live in the woods or get caught and go to what he called juvie. He said he wanted to escape to juvie or he was thinking of going to Canada. Regardless, Megan, it was becoming very clear to the detectives that this had been a planned event. What might not be clear to Philip at this point, and we don't know yet, is that he might not be headed for juvie. He might be headed for um, an adult criminal court. Yeah, so we know this, and I don't believe he knew this at the time. I don't think so. No. Philip also admitted taking Colleen's credit cards, and he said he went to a fast food restaurant into the movies using her credit card. Detectives on the scene uncovered Miss Ritzer's body. She was covered with leaves, and she was clearly deceased. There was a very deep wound to her throat area. Colleen was also found naked from the waist down with her bra pulled up, exposing her breasts. A stick had been inserted into her vagina. A folded note in scrawled handwriting found near the body read, quote, I hate you all. Back at the station, the detectives who were interrogating Philip got the call that the body had been found. They then re-Mirandarized Philip because now he's officially a confessed murderer And he indicated that he was willing to continue to speak to them, but he would still not tell them the, quote, trigger word. The detectives asked him what his motive was, because I think that's everyone's question at this point. And he stated, quote, after she insulted me, that's when I became the teacher. When asked about why he took her pants off, he said he did it to humiliate her. He did Mm -hmm. not admit to sexually assaulting Colleen. He said it wasn't anything sexual. However, there would be evidence of a sexual assault and sperm cells recovered from her body that were consistent with the DNA profile of Philip. Yeah, that's not surprising. No, not at all. The detectives say that Philip was cooperative, polite, and precise in his explanations and his description of events. He provided them great detail and was very helpful and informative. He showed little to no emotion throughout the whole interview. Are we going to get to Colleen and like how long she'd been at the school, her relationship with Philip? Um, yes. Just to give a little background, Colleen was one of three children born to Peggy and Todd Ritzer, and they were a very close family. Now, again, she was only 24 years old, and she looked young enough to be one of her own students. She was known for her bright, sunny personality and approachable demeanor. All of her students and colleagues simply adored her. And while she was teaching at Danvers High School, she was working towards earning her master's degree in youth psychology at a nearby college. 
Was she well liked among the other students? Or do I mean, you know what I mean? Was she a popular teacher? Sounds like maybe she was. She was a very popular teacher, and nobody could understand why any of her students would want to harm her. Um, you know, she was so popular. In fact, her funeral was attended by thousands of people, including 400 students from that school. So, wow. yeah, she was very much well liked. Okay. Okay. So now that we have this, we have pieces of the story. What actually happened on October 22nd? So on that day, Philip came to school prepared for a planned attack on his algebra teacher. He brought with him a box cutter, a ski mask, gloves, and a change of clothes. Police had said that they did not know his motive, but they know that he stayed after the bell rang in his last class, which was algebra. Colleen had told another teacher who stopped in to say hello that she didn't know why the boy was there after school hours. Colleen and Philip made small talk, and they were seen by another student who said that Philip became visibly upset when Colleen brought up Tennessee. The female student who witnessed it said Miss Reitzer became aware that Philip was getting upset about her talking about Tennessee and that she quickly changed the topic. Philip, the student said, then began muttering to himself. Are we yeah. going to find out what happened in Tennessee or what this Tennessee reference is? Because now I'm starting. My curiosity has peaked as well. Yes. In fact, Philip was a new student to the school. He had recently moved to Massachusetts from Tennessee and his parents were in the midst of a very acrimonious and stressful divorce. Now, it's unknown what tri- what the trigger effect of Tennessee was, but we do know that he was adamantly against the move out of his home state. OK, so maybe it was just that. Maybe it was just being forced to leave and not wanting to discuss that because it was so hurtful. That's what it seems like. So then as the video show after this conversation, Colleen went to the ladies room. Philip hood up, followed her that you could see in the footage that he's wearing gloves at this point. He then punched her several times. He called it a karate chop, which would knock her unconscious. He says he then dragged the box cutter across her throat twice because the first one did not go deep enough. And then he stabbed her 14 times. Um, he then took off her pants and raped her at 306 11 minutes after philip walked into the bathroom a female student opened the door and saw philip half naked and backed out thinking that she walked in on someone possibly changing their clothes oh i see okay philip then left the bathroom with his hood up having blood on his hands as he scurried off he went outside to get a recycling bin he ran into some guys he knew and he acted normal he then came back into the building at 3.09 wearing a different outfit. Recall there was a woman who saw him changing his clothes in the student parking lot. Yeah. At 3.16, he went back into the bathroom, placed Colleen and her belongings in the bin. At 3.22, wearing a covering on his face, he wheeled the bin outside, dumped her body, covered it up, abandoned the bin down an embankment 100 feet away, and returned to the school barefoot. It was now 4 p.m. At 4.04, he appeared back on video. He went to visit his locker, and then he went back into the ladies' room at 4.05. After that, he left the building. Philip had also gone back into the algebra classroom, although the time is unclear, but this would likely be when he took Colleen's purse. He then left the school. He went to BJ's Wholesale and Wendy's, using Colleen's cards to fund his purchases. He then went to Holiday Hits Movie Theater, purchasing a ticket to the 4.30 showing of the Woody Allen film Blue Jasmine which is an odd choice for a teenage boy. Oh my, I've seen it. I was going to say that's such an odd choice. But then again, there's nothing really yeah. um, normal about the situation. Yeah. 
It was reported that he sat alone at the movie. In fact, he was the only one in the theater. He then, not clear if it's before or after the movie, but in the parking lot of the movie theater, that's where he smashed his cell phone and her cell phone and left them there. And that's when he began walking, when he was apprehended by the police in Topsfield. All right, this makes sense. Amy, are you, can we have a little more information about Philip to help us understand, uh, you know, maybe more about his background, I don't know, any history here? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, everyone described Philip as a nice, pleasant, quiet kid. Remember, he had recently moved to the area, but he quickly became the leading scorer on the JV soccer team. He had graduated from Rossview Middle School in Clarksville, Tennessee, the previous spring, where his soccer team won the league championship. His teammates had all said that he was the nicest kid on the team. He had a lot of friends in his neighborhood, and he was often out playing soccer or skateboarding with the neighborhood kids. I mean, nobody could imagine him doing anything remotely close to what he was being accused of. He also had a girlfriend, and they were both heartbroken over Phillip's move to Massachusetts. Sounds like, I mean, there didn't seem to be like these immediate red flags. I'm sure there were things, but it sounds like the, you know... This move was really a seriously triggering event for him. Yeah, it sounds like it because, you know, students before and even after the move, though, said that, you know, he was a nice kid. He was quiet. He kind of kept to himself, didn't make any waves. But that's normal for a new kid in school, right, to just kind of keep to themselves. Um, He reportedly did not drink or do drugs, um, reportedly was not acting strangely or fixated on Colleen at all. Um, And a lot of members of the family said that he had no behavioral issues. But if you look closely, there were some signs that things had not all been positive in Philip's life. When Philip was just two years old, his mother was awarded custody. Now, his parents would end up reconciling, and Stacy, his father, would continue to be a part of Philip's life. But it's unclear how long this lasted. So his mother and father seemed to get together, then break up. Um, mm. And then his mother left his father after he was reportedly unfaithful, and she moved in with friends in Tennessee then moved the family to Florida. So eventually they'd moved back to Tennessee where Philip, his mother, and his two young sisters all shared one room. So it's clear that there was a lot of back and forth in the family. Yeah, it's clear that there's a lack of stability, it seems. So by 2013, Philip's life had been one of upheaval and the 6'2", 14-year-old was hiding emotional trauma that would eventually manifest itself in a supreme act of violence. 14-year-old Philip was charged as both a juvenile and as an adult. Massachusetts law requires that anyone 14 or older charged with murder to be treated as an adult under the law. Okay. So per statutory requirements, he was tried as an adult for the murder. However, he was charged with two counts of aggravated rape and robbery as a juvenile offender. Okay, got it. The robbery was for Colleen's underwear, credit cards, and iPhone. The aggravated rape was because he was he sexually assaulted Colleen with a weapon and a second aggravated rape charge was added in January 2014 because Philip assaulted Colleen with a stick. The district attorney would try to join all charges with the murder charge. In other words, they wanted to treat Philip as an adult because, you know, of the horrific acts that he did. Um, Philip's attorney, meanwhile, entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf and he was held without bail. His attorney requested a mental health evaluation to determine whether he was competent to stand trial. After the indictments were handed down, Colleen's family issued a statement, quote, 
We are devastated and heartbroken by the details of the horrific circumstances surrounding the death of our beautiful daughter and sister, Colleen. As a family, we continue to mourn Colleen's passing and ask the media to respect our privacy during this very difficult time. Meanwhile, Phillips' lawyers mounted a vigorous defense. They moved to exclude most of the evidence against their client on the grounds that it had been obtained by the police illegally. Now, they is that because argue- he... Is this, oh. is this, sorry, is this going to be because he asked for a lawyer a couple times and they kept interviewing him? You're absolutely right. To take it further, they argue that the statements he made during his interrogation were involuntary because he was not capable of understanding his right to remain silent. Again, things that had he had a lawyer, he would have known. Right. They, they also cited the fact that he was cuffed and that he said things like no and not really in response to his Miranda warnings. They also wanted the judge to throw out any evidence obtained from what they claim was an illegal stop and frisk, the search of his backpack, and the smashed cell phones. Yeah. Now, prosecutors countered that neither Philip or Diana had stopped the interview and demanded an attorney. In fact, to the contrary, Diana signed the waiver form and told her son to talk. So the court would end up so the court would end up ruling partially for each party. Had a feeling. The, The court cited the fact that no Massachusetts case law permits a parent to invoke a juvenile's right to counsel on his behalf. The ruling stated, quote, the court is not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was paying attention to the Miranda warnings to the extent necessary to find that he understood and waived his Miranda rights beyond a reasonable doubt. However, they further declared that the motion to suppress the contents of his pockets and backpack denied The motion to suppress evidence seized at the high school, denied. And the motion to suppress his statements at the police station in Topsfield was also denied. So basically, prosecutors would have to proceed without the full confession. But it seems like they had a strong case regardless. Yeah, they had a lot. They have a lot of evidence. So, okay. Philip underwent a psych eval and was deemed competent to stand trial. On the fourth day of jury selection, however, he refused to leave his cell and he began banging his head on the floor. Because of this, because of these actions, the trial was delayed a month while he underwent further competency examination. The prosecution still went after murder one, even without the confession. They didn't want to offer a plea deal because they were confident that they could prove murder one and that the defense would fail to show that Philip was insane at the time of the crime. I mean, mm-hmm. Meg, they had a mountain of evidence. Yeah. So re- even without the pieces of the confession, they had the surveillance footage of Philip, which alone is pretty damning. They had his statements to the original police officers. They have a teammate of Phillips who saw him rolling a recycling bin down the hallway. They had a witness who saw him changing clothes. They also had a witness who saw him become mad after the teacher mentioned Tennessee. They had the smashed cell phones. They had the box cutter and Colleen's blood on that cutter on the box cutter as well. They had Colleen's underwear and her credit cards, which were used by Philip. They also had Philip's DNA in the form of semen on the victim's body. Yeah, this is just an overwhelming amount of evidence. A prosecutor's kind of dream case. Yeah. And yeah, the (laughs) the prosecution, as you mentioned, you know, they have really everything they need. Their most powerful witness was a forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsy, stating that this was a sexually motivated homicide. Um, She told the jury that Colleen had been partially asphyxiated, probably by the, quote, karate chop, and then her throat was cut. The doctor said that she thought there was only a slim possibility that Colleen was alive when she was penetrated with the stick. 
And Megan, this issue mattered because if she was alive, it fulfilled the second aggravated rape count. If she was Mm -hmm. deceased, that count could not apply. That makes sense. Okay. So all in all, the, the prosecution was just trying to show that Philip acted with extreme atrocity and cruelty, that premeditation was involved, and that he had committed felony murder. And any one of these would qualify him for a first-degree murder conviction under the state law. I'm really curious to hear what the defense is going to go for at this point, if they're going to go for mitigating factors like trauma, um, provocation. I have no idea what their defense is going to be. Are you going to tell us that now? Yeah, I mean, they clearly had to know that the evidence was overwhelming and that this was an uphill battle for them. Um, And they decided not to contest the physical evidence but instead to argue that Philip was insane at the time of the crime and that he experienced a, quote, psychotic break that drove him to do what he did. And if the jury found if the jury found him insane, then he could be found not guilty. Then he could not be found guilty. So he had to enter. Then he entered a not guilty by insanity plea. Ah, so I didn't we didn't realize that. But that makes sense. Okay. yep. Mitigating factors. Got it. I actually think I mentioned it earlier, like in quick passing. I'm sorry, I didn't recall um, that he was entering not guilty by reason of insanity plea. So that makes sense. The defense had a few witnesses. One doctor testified that Philip responded very well to antipsychotic drugs while he was being held. Um, They also had a doctor who said that they had met with Philip several times. And Philip told him that he heard voices ordering him to do things and that he believed he was a ninja at the time of the homicide. He said Philip had been on the schizophrenia spectrum since the age of 10. He said Philip expressed regret, saying that the voices caused him to harm Colleen. There were some experts that also testified to the fact that Philip's maternal grandmother and aunt had a history of psychotic disorders. Then there was one point of contention. The defense had asked to put on evidence of a long-range study about teenage brain development. And there were these two experts who were lined up to testify that characteristics of Philip's brain on an MRI were also noted in study participants who were diagnosed with schizophrenia or traumatic brain injury. However, the judge said that this testimony could not be permitted on the grounds that it might confuse the jury because Philip himself had not been diagnosed with either of those disorders. Okay. Still a vigorous defense in trying to show that he... You know, was suffering from severe mental illness. Yep. I mean, this, then, of course, the state had a rebuttal witness who mm-hmm. said that rather than being in a psychotic state, that Philip was malingering. So he was faking it. Um, she said that he was, yeah, that he was faking it because uh, the results of a certain battery of tests showed that he was not, in fact, psychotic. So, as usual, you have a battle of the experts in these types of cases. And this does make sense, right? Because if you recall, he smashed the phones, he was wearing a mask, he changed his clothes, all of these things that showed that he knew what he was doing was wrong. I was going to say, I mean, you have a, it's hard to show, you can show that people are psychotic when they do things that they know are wrong because they think they're doing it for, you know, different reasons or they can't conform their conduct, let's say, that's the standard under insanity. But in his case, it's going to be a tough battle because of all these series of decisions, planning and premeditation. Yep. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. The jury deliberated for nine hours and their verdict came in on December 15th, 2015. They rejected the insanity defense and found Philip guilty of murder one, one count of aggravated rape and armed robbery. 
Philip was not guilty on one of the counts of aggravated rape because the jury could not determine that Colleen was alive when she was raped with a stick. Massachusetts law requires a live victim to convict someone of rape. Unlike other states, Massachusetts doesn't have a law against abuse of a corpse, which is kind of shocking, but that's a side note. At the sentencing hearing, people literally lined up to read their victim impact statements. Phillip's team had moved to limit the number of victim impact statements allowed, but the judge denied their motion and permitted all nine to proceed. Colleen's mother, father, brother, sister, and friends all spoke about their pure anguish and pain. Prosecutors were pushing the judge to give Philip the max, saying that Philip Chisholm is a danger to the public in general and to women in particular, and it will not in any way be diminished by the passing of time. So she was asking for a sentence of life in prison with a chance of parole after serving a minimum of 50 years. And again, this is the maximum sentence. On the other hand, the defense attorneys asked for a, for a lighter sentence, citing studies showing that as a juvenile, Philip's brain was not fully developed when he committed these crimes. In the end, the judge gave Philip 40 to 60 years in state prison. This sentence entailed 25 years for the murder, which was the max, and 40 years and one day for the rape and robbery. He could have given 50, so he got a little less on that charge. The sentences were to be served concurrently, meaning that Philip would be eligible for parole in 40 years, which would really only be 38 years because he was being given credit for two years' time served. Okay, so he's going to be, sorry, like terrible at math, but basically eligible for parole in his 50s. Correct. Off to prison, Philip goes. And once he turned 18, of course, he would be transferred. He started in a juvenile facility, as he should, Mm -hmm. because he was only 14, probably 15 at this point. But since he is now over 18, Philip is currently serving his sentence at a supermax prison. Under Massachusetts state law, his murder one conviction was automatically appealed. And even though he was convicted in 2016, the appeal is still going. I'm surprised to hear that he went to a supermax facility. Is there any more information about why? Megan, that's a good question because at first I thought the same thing. But as I continued researching into his institutional behavior, I think I have an idea why. And you'll see. You'll see as well. Oh, I already get it. Okay. Okay. Was finally on the docket for the first time. And in early 2023, just this year, the defense filed a 163-page brief laying out what they claim are the reasons that Philip should not have been convicted, including their contention that jurors should have been allowed to consider the effect of adolescent brain development in deciding this case. Because if you recall, the judge at the trial level refused to allow the jury to hear evidence. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. But you asked why he's in a supermax prison. This murder of Colleen is not the only case facing Philip. While he was incarcerated at the Department of Youth Services facility in Dorchester, this is when he was awaiting trial, he attacked another woman, a DYS counselor named Norma Hollenbeck. This was in June of 2014. At some point, the 29-year-old female victim who Philip had known for several months, walked down the hallway and entered a bathroom inside a staff locker room. Philip was confident that the other staffer was distracted and kicked off his sandals, which would have made noise on the floor. He moved towards the hallway in a bent down position, keeping him out of the staffer's view. He had a pencil in his hand and he opened the door to the locker room. When the female clinician came out of the bathroom, Philip stared at her from about a foot away 
placing both hands around her neck and began to choke her while pushing her back against the cinder block walls in the bathroom. Now, this is horrifying. She managed to get his right hand away from her neck, and then Philip punched her in the face, head and jaw. She screamed, luckily, because at first she wasn't able to scream because his hands were tightly around her neck, but luckily she was able to get free enough to scream, so other staffers rushed to help her and restrained Philip. The victim suffered bruises to her face, jaw, and head, along with a scratch on her back consistent with a tear in her shirt that appeared to be from the pencil that Philip was carrying. Philip was charged with attempted murder by strangulation, assault with intent to murder, kidnapping, and two counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, a pencil and a cinder block wall. Wow. Right? Now do you know why he went to Supermax? Makes perfect sense now. Perfect sense. After this attack, he was actually, before being sent to Supermax, he was sent to uh, Worcester's, Worcester's, He was sent to a state hospital to be evaluated by a psychiatrist because he seemed psychotic. He was screaming incoherently and foaming at the mouth. He was eventually diagnosed, treated, medicated, and then sent to a correctional facility. Philip was indicted by a grand jury for his second brutal attack on a woman in a position of authority over him. Prosecutors allege in court documents that the people at the DYS facility had been warned not to allow Philip to be alone with female staff members. Philip was only 15 at the time of this attack. Philip was scheduled to go to trial on this new attack, but in April 2017, his lawyer filed notice of intent to use the insanity defense and moved to have him evaluated for competency. The evaluation was scheduled to take place over 12 weeks. But as we often see, Megan, this has all been dragged out for years. And in 2021, the case had still not gone to trial. In fact, in September of that year, his attorneys told the judge that they had retained an expert who would evaluate an MRI of Philip's brain. They were pursuing a defense premise on Philip suffering from a brain or mental health disorder. The expert's report was then to be reviewed by the judge and a determination made to, as to whether it could be presented at trial. Remember, the judge had not allowed it at the first trial, so we'll see what happens because this is still ongoing. Wow. So when Philip Chisholm gets out of prison, assuming he is not convicted of the second attack, although I suspect he will be, or maybe Mm -hmm. other crimes, he will be eligible for parole at the age of 54. But to merit release, he would have to show that there is a reasonable probability that if he is released, that he will be able to live without violating the law. Um, I can't imagine that he will be granted parole unless he shows a complete change of behavior. I was going to say, he's in a supermax, which makes it harder for him to actually violate any rules, but he's going to have to show perfect institutional behavior for the rest of his life. And also, that's assuming he doesn't incur any additional charges for the attempted murder of that woman in prison, which I would suspect he's going to incur extra charges. I think so as well. So that's it for Philip. And of course, nothing is going to bring back Colleen. And the Richards are still trying to make sense of how this happened to their daughter. Um, They filed a wrongful death civil suit against the town of Danvers, Danvers Public Schools, and the building contractor who had built the brand new high school. Now, eventually, all the defendants were dismissed except the contractor, and that case is still ongoing. 
So essentially, the Ritzers alleged that if someone had been monitoring the security system at the time that Colleen went into the bathroom, then her murder could have been prevented. Apparently, a police officer had testified at trial about the difficulty of finding surveillance images of Philip moving around the school. During the trial, the school's resource officer testified that while the district had recently completed a $71 million renovation on the high school, which included the new security system, he found that this computer software was outdated and made it difficult to monitor. So they basically argued that the construction company who built the school knew that the new security system was not compatible with the school's old computer system. So since it was a video surveillance that helped put Philip away, it remains to be seen whether this case will go to a jury and if so, what they will decide. Sounds like there's still um, some unanswered questions. It almost sounds like this this case is one that might warrant an update at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in terms of what's going to happen with Philip's appeals and the charges pending in the other cases. What an unbelievable story. I guess this story teaches us, Megan, that You know, if you see something, say something. It seems like there were a lot of witnesses and I don't blame them. But in hindsight, a lot of people did see that something was out of sorts, but probably didn't want to jump to conclusions. Yeah, I would agree. Um, You know, prevention is a big part of the equation here with so many of these cases. Yep. And unfortunately, we can't bring Colleen back, but at least we could try to prevent things like this from happening in the future. That's it for today, and we hope that you will join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook by searching for Campus Killings Podcast. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.